Well, good morning. It's great to be back here at Advent Hope. And as Angie said, um, I was here for a number of years. And it was about a year ago that I had my last Sabbath before going to the mission field. And I've been in Trinidad working as a neurologist at the Adventist Hospital in that great island nation. It's warm year-round. I guess Loma Linda is nearly as good as far as the weather goes. I've been in Michigan the last four weeks. It was 10 degrees when I left. So I'm very glad to be in Loma Linda this weekend for a number of reasons. And my wife, Joelle, is sorry that she can't be here this weekend with me. I wish she was here. I wish our daughter, Sarah Lynn, was here with us too. She was born just a little less than four weeks ago. It's been a wonderful experience to be a father for the first time. And our baby is doing very well. And uh, we dedicated her two weeks ago today. And that was a very special experience also. So I miss being here. It's great to be back. And I feel like I'm among fa- I'm, I am among family and friends. So thank you for allowing me to be with you today. And I wanted to just briefly outline where we are headed today. If you look in the bulletin the, this afternoon, um, the, the messages for this afternoon are entitled 1888 and its continued rejection and 1888 and the Laodicean message. And the title for the sermon this morning is True Revival. What we are going to see is that the Lord sent a message to this church back in 1888 to bring revival and reformation. And this morning is part one of a three-part message. In the afternoon, the first part is really the history of the 1888 era, and then the second part in the afternoon will be the theology of the 1888 era. So I hope if you're interested in knowing what the message is that the Lord has for us to prepare us for his coming, I hope to see you this afternoon, and it's great to see you here this morning. Before we go any farther, I would like to have a word of prayer. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day. And I want to thank you personally that I can be back with my friends here at Advent Hope. But more than that, I pray in a special way that you would speak through me this morning and throughout today and that Christ would be lifted up. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, just this past October the annual council of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists voted on an appeal, an urgent appeal, for revival, reformation, discipleship, and evangelism. How many of you have read that document? So just a few of you. Now the question is, why would the leadership of the Seventh-day Adventist church be making an appeal for revival and reformation. Now, I'm going to read you a survey or 
a sample from a survey that was done actually probably over 20 years ago now, and it was talked about in the Adventist Review, and it, it, was, it talked about a survey that was done among Seventh-day Adventists. So this is a relevant topic for us. Here's what the survey was about. It was about one's personal relationship with Christ. Now, do you think that's an important question to be asking people? So how is our personal relationship with Christ? Now, notice this. First of all, an average of 63% said that they have an intimate relationship with Christ. That's, you know, I'd like to see it higher, but 63% of Seventh-day Adventists said they had an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, that's good. And better yet, 73% reported that they have assurance of eternal life. Assurance of salvation, 73%. Now here's the kicker. Only 34% study the Bible daily and 33% have family worship. Is there a disconnect here? And you know, I, I praise God for the leadership of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You know, my wife and I were in Trinidad when Ted Wilson gave his sermon in Atlanta, and um, we stayed home from church to have church with the world church, and we watched on the internet. And to be honest with you, that is probably the most excited I've ever been to be a Seventh-day Adventist when I saw that sermon. Because we really need revival and reformation in our midst. You know, we can say, oh yes, I have assurance of eternal life, but I only, have, I only study my Bible once or twice a week. Oh yes, I have an intimate relationship with Jesus, but I never talk to him in prayer except for maybe twice a day for mealtime. We as a people need to come up higher and the leadership of our church recognized this. Notice what they say. I'm just going to read a few excerpts. They said, and this is voted by the leadership of our world church. God has uniquely called the Seventh-day Adventist Church both to live and to proclaim his last day message of love and truth to the world as found in the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. The challenge of reaching the more than six billion people on planet Earth with his end time message seems impossible. The task is overwhelming. From a human perspective, the rapid fulfillment of Christ's great commission anytime soon appears unlikely. Now that is a sobering assessment from the leadership of our church. That from a human perspective, the rapid fulfillment of the Great Commission being fulfilled anytime soon appears unlikely. And notice what they say. The church's growth rate is simply not keeping pace with the world's burgeoning population. An honest evaluation of our current evangelistic impact on the world leads to the conclusion that unless there is a dramatic change we will not complete heaven's assignment in this generation. You know, every generation of Seventh-day Adventists has always said our commission is to take the gospel to the world in this generation. 
And yet the leadership of our church is saying, look, unless there's a dramatic change in our evangelistic efforts, we don't have hope of fulfilling that commission in our generation. Now, they go on to say, when Pentecost was poured out on the disciples, they were able to accomplish that. Now, here's what they say. The church will experience a spiritual revival and Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Peter gives us this assurance. And then LMY adds this, and this is a quote that has challenged me for a long time because I have to ask myself, do I have this experience? This is from Great Controversy, page 464. Before the final visitation of God's judgments upon the earth, there will be among the people of the Lord such a revival of primitive godliness as has not been witnessed since apostolic times. The spirit and power of God will be poured out upon his children. Has that happened yet? No, because we are still here and the fulfillment of the gospel commission is still struggling to the point that the leadership of our world church is making an urgent appeal for revival and reformation. Continuing on, they say, too often petty jealousies, ambitions, and fractured personal relationships have crowded out our longing for revival and reformation. You know, it goes something like this. Well, God, I will do your work if you allow me to be the first elder. God, I will do your work if you allow me to be the main Sabbath school teacher. God, I will do your work if you allow me to get recognition for the things that I do rather than, are we doing this to bring glory to God? And then notice what they say. We acknowledge that the coming of Jesus has been delayed and that our Lord longed to come decades ago. That is a, an, extra, an extraordinary acknowledgement by the leadership of our church. We acknowledge that the coming of Jesus has been delayed and that our Lord longed to come decades ago, we repent of our lukewarmness, our worldliness, and our limited passion for Christ and his mission. And if you haven't read the whole document, you can go to revivalandreformation.org and, and read it, and I encourage you to do that. You know, it's interesting for me, when I picked the sermon title for today, True Revival, and I got it from this book that we got at GYC for those of us who were there. You know, I didn't know that Advent Hope was going to be having a prayer session last night praying for revival and reformation. And this tells me that the Holy Spirit is moving on his church again, hoping that we will respond to this appeal to have revival and reformation so that the latter rain can be poured out so that the gospel commission really can be finished in our generation. Do you want to see that happen? <clears throat> and you know, the famous quote from Ellen White, Selected Messages, Volume 1, a revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. Do you believe that? Okay, now, here's where things get more personal. What does the word revival mean? Revival means 
to bring back to life. So if we acknowledge that we need revival, we have to acknowledge that we are dead spiritually. You know, a lot of times when we talk about revival and reformation, we'll say, oh yeah, we need revival. I could use some modification on my life. Actually, what it's telling us is if we need revival, that means we are dead spiritually. Now, this is something that I have been praying about in my own personal experience every day. Lord, give me that personal revival. Because if we were to look at our lives, and I was talking to my mother-in-law in the last week about this, and what she was saying made so much sense. She said, you know, we're not there yet as a people, personally and corporately, because Jesus really is not all and all 100%. And the way we know that is the way we live our lives and how we spend our time. And the obvious illustrations would be when, and I think back to the time when I fell in love with my now wife, Joelle, obviously we were spending all the time and we started off long distance. There were times we'd talk on the phone for four hours and would, you know, two hours later call again. That that's, should be normal, right? Um, do we have that kind of passion for Christ? Do we have that kind of love for Him? And one of the other challenges that I see for us when we talk about revival of true godliness is that we often say, amen, we need revival. I can think of that person, that person, and that person that need revival. They are doing this, they are doing that, and boy, if they could just get revived, our church would be so much better. And we don't apply it to ourselves personally. So I want to... I want you to turn in, in your Bibles now with me to Luke chapter 18 to a very familiar story. And I want to make it real for each one of us. Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through 14. Here the Bible says, Two men went up into the temple to pray the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now notice, the Pharisee here, and I've often looked at this and I come away saying, you know, the Pharisee came to this prayer and he's just saying, God, I thank you that I'm better than everyone else. Is that what the Pharisee is saying? If you look carefully at what he's saying, what he's saying is, is like, he's actually saying, look, 
God, I may not have it all together, but at least I'm not like extortioners. And at least I'm not like an adulterer. And at least I'm not like that publican. I might have some things wrong, but at least I'm not as bad as them. Do we do that? You know, are we like the people... You know, and I, I thought I had to think about this for myself as I looked at this parable more carefully. You know, I, I doubt most of us come to church and pray exactly like that. But surely many of us are tempted to think thoughts such as this. God, I thank you that at least I'm not like those people who think you can be a Christian and believe in evolution. Or, God, I thank you that at least I come to Sabbath school and church and pay tithe. Surely that makes up for the fact that I'm not having much time in personal devotions and that I spend most of my free time watching television or surfing the Internet. God, I thank you that at least I'm more sensitive to reaching out to friends of other faiths than some people I go to church with. Surely that makes up for the disdain I have for the people that aren't like me. Or, God, I thank you, thank you that at least I know more about Daniel and Revelation, especially Daniel 11, than a lot of other Seventh-day Adventists. Surely that will make up for me not doing any outreach or mission work. You know, the devil gets us to think this way, to pray these kind of prayers, so that the Holy Spirit is blocked from convicting us of the sins in our own lives that is preventing the Holy Spirit from being poured out in latter rain proportions in our lives so that we can be real witnesses for Christ. You know, and I'm not saying that it's okay to believe evolution. I'm not saying that it's okay to do the other things that I mentioned. Don't get me wrong. Thank God that we have people who believe in creation. Thank God that we have people who understand prophecy. Don't get me wrong. But if we set the things that we are doing right as a replacement for repentance of the sins that remain in us, then those things that we are doing right really won't matter at the end of the day. And the people that we think that we are better than, if we still have un repentant, uh, sins unrepented of in our lives, we're going to end up in the same place. And what we need is to be like the publican who came before God and said, you know what, Lord, there may be a lot of other people in this world that are doing things a lot worse than me, but just like Paul, I am the chief of all sinners. And if Jesus, if you didn't die for me, I would have no hope. And Jesus says, that man went down to his house justified. Now, I want to go back to the quote from Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 121, where Ellen White says, A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs. To seek this should be our first work. Now, notice this. There must be earnest effort to obtain the blessing of the Lord, not because God is not willing to bestow his blessing upon us, but because we are unprepared to receive it. Our Heavenly Father is more willing to give his Holy Spirit to them that ask him than our earthly parents to give good gifts to their children. And that has more meaning for me now that I have a child. You know, I would do anything for her, and yet God is more willing to do anything for us, to give the Holy Spirit to us. So why is it not, 
Why has it not been given to us? Notice what our work is to do. It is our work by confession, humiliation, repentance, and earnest prayer to fulfill the conditions upon which God has promised to grant his blessing. So rather than saying, God, I thank you that at least I'm not like those people. I may not have it all together yet, but at least I'm not like them. We need to come before the Lord confessing our sins specifically. You know, you, you just come to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. No. Lord, forgive me for snapping at my wife today and for not re revealing your character when my Patience was tested. Lord, forgive me for passing up on that witnessing opportunity when someone was just ripe to hear words of truth and I just didn't feel like bothering. Those are the types of prayers that God will listen to when it is said from a sincere heart. And of course, we who know so much have learned how to pray prayers so that it sounds like we are being sincere, but in our heart we aren't really saying that. We'll just say the right things, go through the motions, and yet God can read our hearts and know, you know, we don't really feel like doing outreach and we're glad we didn't witness to the person when they, when they needed it. That's our human tendency. We need to spend time in confession before the Lord. And if you have something against someone here or anywhere, you should make that right. I mean, here we are, God's children, and we'll hold grudges against each other. We need to humble ourselves through humiliation, to repent, to have earnest prayer. That is what is so often lacking in our prayers. And you know, think about this. How many times has our church called for revival and reformation since our founding? It's happened many, many times, and we're going to get into the history of that this afternoon. But let me continue on in this quote from Selected Messages, Volume 1. The old standard bearers knew what it was to wrestle with God in prayer and to enjoy the outpouring of a spirit. But these are passing off from the stage of action. And who are coming up to fill their places? Are you going to be the ones to fill the places? <clears throat> How is it with a rising generation? Are they converted to God? Are we awake to the work that is going on in the heavenly sanctuary? Or are we waiting for some compelling power to come upon the church before we shall arouse? Are we hoping to see the whole church revived? That time will never come. Listen, don't wait for the whole church to become revived. God wants you to be his agent for revival and reformation. If you are the only one, God can work through you in a powerful way to make a huge change wherever you are. You can be a light for the gospel of God. And then she goes on to say, and I'm going to finish this quote, we have far more to fear from within than from without. Unbelievers have a right to expect that those who profess to be keeping the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus will do more than any other class to promote and honor by their consistent lives, by their godly example and their active influence, the cause which they represent. Does that sound reasonable? But how often have the professed advocates of the truth proved the greatest obstacle to its advancement? 
May we not be obstacles to the outpouring of God's Spirit on His people. Amen? I want to be among those who God can pour out His Holy Spirit. God is not looking for people who are simply better than people that are lower down. If we are sinners, we are sinners. God is looking for people who realize their complete nothingness, come to Christ completely, 100%, so that we can receive the outpouring of His Holy Spirit. And I want to read something. This is from Manuscript Releases, Volume 21, page 403. The church needs men today who, like Enoch, walk with God, revealing Christ to the world. Amen? Can you say today in your heart of hearts that you are like Enoch, revealing Christ to the world, and that you are ready for translation? Heavenly messengers are waiting to communicate with men who have sunk self out of sight, whose lives are a fulfilling of the words, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That, of course, is Galatians 2.20. And then she says, Of such men and women must the church be composed before her light can shine forth to the world in clear, distinct rays. Do you want your life to be such that the light of Christ will shine forth to the world in clear, distinct rays. What does your life demonstrate to the world? Does it demonstrate the life of Christ? Or does it demonstrate conformity to the things of this world? And you know, the world can tell. The world can tell when we are one of them or if we are really a Christian. And we know that. I mean, the things that we talk about with our coworkers at work, the entertainment we participate or refuse to participate in, the world knows the difference. And of course, it should shine forth with the love of Christ. Now, I want to zero in on this passage, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And this is a verse that many of us have known and read for a long time. And the reason why I'm speaking about this verse today is because this was one of the key verses that the messengers in 1888 often used to preach their message of righteousness by faith. And we're going to talk about that more this afternoon. And the book of Galatians was the key book through which the messengers came to a deeper understanding of righteousness by faith to prepare God's people for the last message of mercy to the world. So Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, think about that very first phrase. I am crucified with Christ. How much did Christ enjoy being crucified? What was it like in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus prayed three times, Father, if it be possible, 
let this cup pass from me. In his human nature, Christ did not want to go through the trial and the cross. Yet he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And he went through the experience on the cross. How many times do we say, I know that the Bible says this, but I'm going to do it like this. Is that being crucified with Christ? And we say, well, I know the Bible says this, but if I were to do it like that, that would be really hard. That would be really uncomfortable. That would make me really unpopular. That would make me seem strange. Why would God want me to do that? No, I'm not going to do that. Where is the spirit of nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done? I am crucified with Christ. Now, when you look at the book of Galatians, why did Paul feel compelled to make this point to the church at Galatia? If you look in the book of Galatians, starting in the first chapter, Paul, in verse 6 of chapter 1, says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. So here's Paul. Paul had come to Galatia. He had taught them clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then he leaves, and other people, other teachers come in, and they start teaching a different gospel. And doesn't that happen so often in our church? The Bible is crystal clear about the, what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And then other people come in and say, no, the gospel isn't really that. All you need is this. And notice what this other gospel is. Paul goes through chapter 1 and he says, I can't believe you've already been turned from the gospel that I taught you. And then in chapter 2, up through verse 16, he describes what happened at the Jerusalem council, and he describes how in one setting, Peter was with the Gentiles. Peter, being a Jew, was circumcised, but then the, and the Gentiles were uncircumcised, and then the Jews who taught that you needed to be circumcised to have righteousness showed up, and guess what Peter does? He steps away from the Gentiles because it would make him look unclean. But by that point, the ceremonial law had been done away with, and Paul rebukes Peter. And what Paul is trying to teach here is, look, those of you in Galatia who are listening to Judaizers who are coming in and teaching you that the gospel of Jesus Christ that I taught to you is not sufficient, that what you really need is circumcision for salvation, that is simply wrong. And in fact, he says that those who teach that, let them be accursed. That's very strong language. And then he comes to verses 16 through 20, and he says, those who are justified are justified, this is verse 16, by the faith of Jesus Christ. 
And then he says, I am crucified with Christ. What Paul is teaching the church of Galatia, and this is the message that will bring revival and reformation when we have this experience, is that the gospel of Christ, that the experience of righteousness by faith, that the message we need of justification by faith is being crucified with Christ so that I no longer live, but now Christ lives in me. And what he's saying is, look, don't let somebody tell you that you can receive salvation by doing some simple outward act of the flesh. That's, what not, that's not what God is looking for. God is not looking for an easy out to salvation. And in reality, if you want to take a look, being crucified with Christ is a much more severe test to pass through than going through the simple act of circumcision. And you can plug in anything else to what circumcision could represent. People will say, oh, you, you don't have to be surrendered to Christ to be saved. All you have to do is believe and he'll believe in Christ. He'll cover you with his righteousness. You're not really changed, but you believe unto salvation even though you aren't changed. And you don't have to worry about that being crucified with Christ part. And it's the same thing today as it was in Galatia. In Galatia, oh, just believe in Jesus and you have assurance of eternal life. That's why when that survey was taken that I talked about earlier, 63% say, oh yes, I have an intimate relationship with Jesus. 73% say, oh yes, I have assurance of salvation. And 33% spend time with him on a daily basis. It's so much easier to say all you have to do is make an outward statement, circumcision, or yes, I believe Jesus is my Savior, and you go around what is really needed, which is crucifixion of self. And that is what is lacking in our church today. And I, if you go to Romans chapter 6, which is the corollary verse to Galatians 2 verse 20, Romans chapter 6, verse 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So here's what happens when we are crucified with Christ. Our old man is crucified with Christ. Now, do you know who the old man is? Romans 7 teaches you who the old man is. He's the old man, that slave master, who causes you to be in bondage to him so that even though you know what is right, you don't do the things you want to do, and you do the things you don't want to do, and you're the wretched man because you know what's right, but you're not doing it because you're in captivity to the old man. And as long as you're in captivity to the old man, Christ cannot live through you. That's why the old man must be crucified. So you know what the old man says to us? The old man says things like, you know, <clears throat> if I'm not the one running your life, you won't really be you anymore. You'll be like one of those strange Christians that people think are funny. You don't really want to be like that, do you? You know, you won't really be you. You won't really be Norman anymore. You know, when that person gets on your nerves and you just want to tell them, Norman, that, man, you are just so dull. 
Can't you reason from cause to effect? What's wrong with you? What school did you go to? And I struggle with that. I really do. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said that audibly. But I've definitely thought that. And Lord, forgive me. <clears throat> He's the old man who wants you to be grumpy when things aren't going right, to be bitter at the circumstances that you've had to deal with. He's the one that tells you that if you become crucified with Christ and allow the old man to die, you're not going to be able to enjoy that food that you like so much. You won't be able to dress to show yourself off the way you do. You know, you won't really be you anymore. And yet, we are called to be crucified with Christ. You know, Jesus died for us. He gave up everything for us, and yet we say that's too much for me to give up this. My life wouldn't really be worth living if I couldn't eat this kind of food or if I couldn't watch this thing or that thing. Are you serious? Do you know what you're missing out on when Christ lives out his life through you? That is the most powerful, wonderful, enriching experience that you could ever experience here on this earth. So Paul comes to Galatians 2.20 and he says, I am crucified with Christ. And then in chapter 3 verse 1 he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. When Paul came to the church of Galatia, he preached the gospel in such a powerful way that the believers could see Christ hanging on the cross for them. And the question is, have you ever really seen Jesus as your Savior on the cross for your sins? Because I can guarantee you, if you really see Jesus on the cross for you as your personal Savior, you're not thinking about like, oh, I'm so thankful that Jesus died for my brother over here who has so many problems. I just wish he would accept Jesus so that his life could be changed. No, what about you? Jesus died for you. Have you seen him sweating the drops of blood because of your sins? The nails going through his hands because of your sins. And when you see him in that way, there is no way that you could not love Jesus. He should be the best and the dearest and the most lovely of anything. Even if you're married, Christ is chief and above all when you see Christ in that way. And when you see Christ evidently set before you crucified, you will know immediately in your mind, if you could see Jesus looking at you in the eye, you would know everything in your life that he wants you to give up for him. And what are you going to say to Jesus? You're looking at him eye to eye. He's hanging on the cross for you. And you say, well, Jesus... I thank you that you love me so much and that you're on the cross there for me because of my sins but, and that you gave up everything, but you don't really want me to, to give up that relationship with a non-Christian that I'm in, do you? You don't really want me to, to give up watching soap operas, do you? You know what I mean? How could we say to Jesus, I'm not going to do it when we look at him in the eye? And I really believe 
that each of us here, myself included, need to have a deeper experience with Christ. We need to see him on the cross as our Savior with his matchless charms where he is drawing us to him through his love, through his sacrifice. And how could we ever say to him, Lord, I know you gave up everything, but I'm only going to give you some back. Those who have seen Christ on the cross will give up everything. And when we have been crucified with Christ, Imagine the experience. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. So now my life is a demonstration of Christ to the world. How do I live? By the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the faith of Jesus. That is the third angel's message. And the reason why... The gospel commission has not yet gone to the world. The reason why the third angel's message has not yet been preached with power. The reason why the angel of Revelation 18 has not yet come down so that the earth is lightened with its glory, so that the world can see with its eyes the living demonstration of the power of Christ here on this earth is because we as his people say, yes, Lord, I know you died for me, but surely you don't want me to change to be like you. Why can't I just still be a carnal Christian and accept your sacrifice and fit in with the world and then I'll just go to heaven when you come? No, God is looking for a group of people who will be crucified with Christ. They no longer live. The old man no longer rules the life. Christ rules the life. Christ lives out his life through them. And seriously, for those of you who are married, wives, how would you like it if Christ was in control of your husband? And husbands, how would you like it if, if Christ was in control of your wives? Do you imagine the stuff that you argue about and this and that? All of that stuff would wash away if Christ was in control. And the way we relate to our friends, all of those things. If Christ was in control, we would be living demonstrations of Christ to our families, to our fellow church members, and to the world around us. And the world is waiting. The universe is waiting. Christ is waiting for that time when the earth can be lightened with the glory of God because God has a group of people who are living demonstrations of Christ here on this earth. And I just want to say to those of you here at Advent Hope <clears throat> that God has given Advent Hope a special work to do here in the Loma Linda area. And I'm thankful to be back. It's been a year. It's special to be among friends again. And the Lord has called me to Trinidad for the time being, and I'm thankful for the opportunity that I have had and continue to have to minister for him there. But I think about you guys a lot, and I pray for you. I hope and pray that this group here will never lose the vision of what its mission and identity is. Our mission here is to proclaim the three angels' messages with power. 
And the only way we're going to be, the only way we will do it effectively is if we are crucified with Christ every day so that we will be living demonstrations of the life of Christ. So I ask that you would pray for me as I am doing the Lord's work in the mission field, and I will continue to keep you in prayer here, that you will not lose your focus, that you will be evangelistic, that you will have revival and reformation, that God will be able to work through the people of Advent Hope so that God up in heaven and Jesus as our high priest, they will look down at Advent Hope and Loma Linda and they will say there is a whole group of people who have been crucified with Christ who are demonstrating my character to the world around them in their sphere of influence in Loma Linda. God has a work to be done in this place. And if you're not going to do it, who is he going to use? So I pray that you will be faithful and that God can use you and that all of us will be ready when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven. This afternoon, I invite you to come back. We're going to go through the history of 1888 in our first afternoon presentation at 3. We're going to go through the theology of 1888. Um, including the Laodicean message to the church. Um, I would encourage you to especially be there for that. That's at 4 o'clock. And I just pray that there will be an awakening among us as a people.